Good morning. Every, every word has baggage. Every single person that's had any experience has a pre-understanding of what that word might bring with it. The scriptures give us a wealth of language that might be heavy for you or difficult to hear at a time. Particularly, it's loaded with family language. Family language. When you think of family, every one of us in this room, we have, some of us have positive feelings and some of us have negative feelings. And we have to be honest with that and we need to address that, but we also need to be doubly mindful to not allow that to bleed into how we understand and interact with God. For example, when Jesus comes on the scene, or Jesus, the eternal Son, takes on flesh, the God-man, he takes on flesh, and Jesus comes and he flips things upside down, that he's the first that addresses God as Father, because he's of one essence with God in, in an intimate relationship, and so he addresses God as Father, and then he commands his disciples, he teaches his disciples to pray the same way, to pray, our Father who art in heaven. This becomes shocking, and so if you have a difficult background as you think of a relationship with a father, that can be difficult or, or maybe foreign to you. What the Scriptures call us to do is to rewire the foundation, to, to blow up the old foundation, and to build a new foundation rooted in the Scripture. This becomes the scaffolding for our lives, the foundation by which we rest upon. In our text today and all through this letter, we've seen Paul mention on several occasions the family of God, the local church, is Adelphoi, is brothers, brothers and sisters. You and I, regardless of our background, this church in Galatia made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, that they now, regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their age, they now are a family. Not simply a family, but they are the forgiven family of Christ. They are the forgiven family of Christ who has their hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone not in their genealogy, not in the resumes of their life, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now men and women are to, to address each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is who we now truly are. As we come now to this second to last sermon that we'll have in the book of Galatians, Paul addresses in chapter 6 what we might call a family meeting. A family meeting. He addresses them again as Adelphoi, his brothers and sisters, his brothers. He says, listen, here's who we are. And as followers of Jesus Christ, the picture is that as we long after Christ together, as we surrender our lives to the purpose of being and making disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, as we do this in a world that is marked by divisions in every way that it could possibly be cut down into a division, Walking after Christ as a body, loving and serving and caring for one another and rebuking each other and pursuing each other and living life as brothers and sisters in Christ will look increasingly contrastive to a broken and lost world. And so that by God's grace, when they come and they interact among you, when they see this one-mindedness, that it will be so stark in their vision that God may use it to cause them to stop and to consider the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer as we come to our text this morning, the sermon I've labeled a family meeting, as we gather every Sunday morning as a church family, 
to celebrate and to fix our eyes on Christ, to love one another and to sing together and to serve one another. The command and the call that all of us have to ask is what kind of family member am I? What kind of brother and sister will I be from this day forward? And more specifically, who does God call me to be as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ? So turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to follow along in the Pewback Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 6, recall with me first and foremost, verses 1 through 6, that we as disciples are called by God to be committed and accountable to one another as a local church family. We as disciples are called by God to be committed and accountable to one another as a local church family. And in doing so, as we understand this bigger idea, this umbrella of a phrase that I've placed for us, it, it leads us to arrive at this point by asking two questions. Two questions, as I've broken down verses 1 through 6. The first is, before God, what kind of sibling am I resolving to be? Verses 1 through 3. Before God, the one that we're accountable to ultimately, what kind of sibling am I resolving to be? So verses 1 through 3, here we go as we begin the final chapter of the book of Galatians. And Paul writes, and there it is again, Brothers, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In Genesis 4, after the fall, the fall occurs in Genesis 3, before sin comes in and impacts every aspect of who we are physically, emotionally, spiritually. Right after the fall takes place in Genesis 3, in Genesis 4, we have a sibling relationship, the first sibling relationship, Cain and Abel. And Cain is filled with jealousy and bitterness towards Abel and the sacrifice that he gives joyfully to God fills him with anger and bitterness to the point that he murders his brother Cain. The first sibling relationship. So parents, it can always get worse. <laughs> From the very beginning, it's not a gradual increase in, in, in uh, disruption of family unity. But from the very beginning, there's murder among brothers. And God confronts him and he says, Hey, Cain, where is your brother Abel? What does Abel respond? Or Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper. The New Testament calls us in Christ to answer Cain, yes. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, I am my sister's keeper. And that's what a local church is. It's a body committing together to say, I am your keeper. You are my keeper for the purpose of being and making disciples of Jesus Christ until he should call us home. Yes, I am. Yes, I am your keeper. And yes, you are my keeper. It rewires everything. You see what he says at the very beginning. If anyone is caught in any transgression, a transgression, a sin, or a false worldview, in the immediate culture, what is it? The immediate context, it's those brothers or sisters that are one step out the door with the Judaizers. Those that are trying to get them to take on the laws of Moses and abandon the gospel in itself. To them, he says, hey, you should do what? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you, it's a command, restore that person. Restore that person. This is a 
incredible phrase, restore, that word specifically. It's used all over the place in the New Testament. One of my favorites is in Matthew 4. It's used of James and John who are sitting in the boat with their dad. And Jesus comes along and they're sitting in the boat and they're mending their nets. They're restoring their nets. And then Jesus comes along and calls them out from that. Like a good fisherman, though, they're taking time to mend their nets. That's the word that Paul uses here for how you and I are to treat brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are committed to mend each other, to restore each other. So in a practical church setting, it means to call us to repentance and faith, to bring us back into right standing in the context of a local church, to love each other enough to pursue each other, to aim to mend one another, where in our lives we become frayed. We'll see how this plays out as we go into later verses, but we're commanded to restore one another. And how are we to do so? With a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of hospitality, so not saying, I told you so. I think there's a fear in our lives when we stumble. There's a fear in our lives that say, you know what, if I ever go back there, they're just going to be waiting and they're going to judge me and they're going to tell me I told you so. I think that's one of the devil's most successful schemes in our culture. And it causes us oftentimes to double down in pride. But in reality, the heart that we have for brothers and sisters, just like if a biological brother or sister of yours came humbly in repentance, surrendering to the gospel, your first words wouldn't be, I told you so. I believe we would be very much like prodigal fathers. We think of the prodigal son, but we don't think of the prodigal dads. That our hearts very much so would be scanning the horizon, checking the door like a concerned parent at night whose child has skipped the time they're supposed to be back. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ are called to do to pursue after one another, loving one another, and waiting to put their arms around each other. That's what the Lord calls us to do as brothers and sisters, to restore one another with gentleness. And as we do so, he says, keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. So as we do so, we should do it in a group. This should be a team project. So don't pursue somebody. Here's practical wisdom. If the Lord has placed somebody in your heart to pursue, whether they've started to walk away from the Christian faith or their life has fallen into immorality, don't just go for it. Go with a team. Share that with your small group. Share that with the ministry you're involved with. Ask another believer to be praying with you and, or to go with you. But there's great wisdom in that. Like firefighters, we don't just, wouldn't just go into a building by ourselves. There's a team element to what we're doing. So too is the wisdom. We're to watch out for one another. And as we pursue one another, as brothers and sisters, we demonstrate what he calls the law of Christ. Remember, they're being tempted to abandon and take on the law of Moses. He says, no, 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 no. As spiritual people, as spirit-filled people, those adopted by faith in Christ who've received the Holy Spirit, we fulfill the law of Christ when we pursue our brothers and sisters in the gospel. Doing so is an act of love, and not doing so, the Spirit of God won't let you sit comfortable not doing so. It will be like you violated a law. The Spirit of God will convict you to increasingly care for the other brothers and sisters around you. And so in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ, this indebtedness we have one to another as adopted children of God by faith. This is a good thing. The local church is truly to be a family. I'll give you two practical elements to increase that to be the case in our church context. Two very practical things. We could give a hundred practical things, but just two that come to mind. Here's a challenge for you. A challenge for you. 
Would you consider this month having someone over into your home or your apartment? Have someone over and enjoy a meal with them. But here's the twist. Not somebody in your small group. Not somebody that you normally hang out with. Somebody in this room that you've never spoken before to. That you would have very little interaction with. Right now your eyes are already beginning to look around. I can see the uncomfortableness. And I think I actually kind of enjoy it. Something's wrong with me. But here's a challenge, very practical challenge. To ask somebody that you would normally not interact with and to ask them, hey, would you, somebody of a different generation even, would you be interested in coming over and sharing a meal together? A cup of coffee, a cup of tea. And if not, go meet somewhere, someone else. But if you can't have them over into your home, have them into your home. Demonstrate hospitality. Celebrate the gospel together. Pray together. Encourage each other. And you know what will begin to happen more naturally? Not only will we look more and more contrastive as a church family to our, our lost world, but we will do what he says there. I believe our, our desire to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ will increase because we better know one another. We've shared a meal together. Practical challenge. Practical challenge number two would be consider uh, sinking roots somewhere. Our new member workshop is a good opportunity to be able to eat a meal with our elders and staff members to find out about our church philosophy, beliefs, and ministries. Consider being involved in a place like that. Get to know the church more and how the church operates and what it does and who it is. So the first question is what? What kind of sibling before God am I resolving to be? And the second question in a similar avenue is how regularly and how closely am I examining myself as a steward? As a steward. Right? A steward is somebody that's given something for a period of time to manage it well. So the question is, how consistently am I examining my life as a steward? God has entrusted me with something for a period of time. The sound theology of stewardship begins with Genesis 1, in the beginning God. Everything of who we are and what we are is made by God, for God. What we do is to be through God in Christ. Everything is to be for Him. That's the mark of a steward. That's who we are. It's not our stuff. It's not us. It's to be stewarded for His glory and His purposes. So I broke this down for us in three different ways. Verse 1 through 3 is kind of a semi-review here. Stewarding relationships, three different components of what it means to be a steward. 4 through 6, we'll deal with the second two elements, but as a review, stewarding relationships. We've already noticed that. We're called to steward relationships in such a way that like a shepherd leads a flock, you and I are called to steward relationships in the gospel. The Lord gives it to the church. If you remember in our 1 Timothy 5 text, 1 Timothy 5, he says in 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man, talking about the context of a church and the body. How do we interact? He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. How are we to steward relationships in the gospel? Well, first, as believers, we celebrate the gospel together. Part of that is a local church setting. We sing the gospel together. We hear the gospel together. We talk afterwards of, hey, how, how did that strike you? How might the Lord use that to apply to your life and my life better? And here's how to hold me accountable as I do so. And we give counsel to each other as believers. We give counsel from the Word of God as our final authority. We give counsel on how the gospel impacts that difficulty or that strain 
So as believers, we put our arm around each other and help each other sit under the goodness of the Word of God. How does it apply to unbelievers? To unbelievers on this side, we're saying, come and trust the Gospel. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It is He who made us and we are His. Come to Jesus. Celebrate the Gospel. Build your life on the goodness of the Gospel upon Christ alone, the God-man. So it's a, each of those relationships, we're stewarding them towards responsibility in Christ. So relationships, and then we have, secondly, responsibilities. This is our text then in 4 and 5. Stewarding responsibilities. Galatians 6, 4 through 5. He says, but let each one test his own work. So your work, your work with a responsibility. Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, if you read that first, it sounds contradictory. As he just said in the previous verses, bear one another's burdens. But now he says, examine yourselves so that you don't become a burden. <laughs> what? Did you forget what you just wrote? Of course not. It's explaining how we're to be good brothers and sisters. We want to be like iguanas. Iguanas would make a good sibling. Here's what I mean. One eye, one eye is on our brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you need? How are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. How can I pray for you? And when you see somebody stumbling, you go and you rather gather around them and you love them and you hug them and you encourage them and you listen to them and you counsel from the gospel with them. But the other eye is on yourself. He says, examine yourself Examine your work. Taste of your fruit. So if this is the first sermon in Galatians, I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous two to see how this fits in the context of the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He says, taste of your own fruit. So take one eye on yourself and make sure you're not burning out. Make sure you're also taking care of yourself so that you can prevent yourself from becoming a point of exhaustion and wearisome. That you need the body to come and pick you up for a season. We will all probably be at that point at some point in our lives. I know we will. But he's saying, one eye on the body, one eye on yourself, and your heart and your mind on Christ. That's stewarding our responsibilities. Relationships, responsibilities, and then verse 6, stewarding financial resources. Everyone's favorite topic. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word... Share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, and 1 Corinthians 9, he also addresses the issue of, of, of giving of your finances, the context of the local church body. I agree. This is, preach it. And we give it in our lives in this understanding. That in the context, immediately, you've got the Judaizers that are coming in, if you remember, and they're being propped up, and he's encouraging them, hey, the teachers that are teaching the gospel, that are laboring among you, like, give of what you have. Yes, give of what you have. <laughs> Do not feel uncomfortable at all, by the way. I probably just like, made a huge mistake. I, made you feel like, this is, I couldn't have timed this better for this to happen in the most tense part of the sermon, so this is perfect. She's got me. We are, we are connecting on a new level. This is amazing. It's fantastic. In our calling as believers, this is who we are. 
This is what we're called to do. We're called to pour out all of our lives together unashamedly, and that includes also the aspect of our finances. So the question becomes, I want to give five different principles that I think can help us as we walk through the Scriptures. And one of the benefits we have and that you have of being a part of a church that takes a text and walks through the text is it prevents your elders from dodging a text. Our desire is to teach the full counsel of God. And so here, when the text deals with finances like this, we will deal with finances. And so here's five different principles of wisdom for how we might go about being faithful stewards of also our financial resources. The first is this, that you should give prayerfully. Give prayerfully. You should talk to God regularly about giving. And in every area of our lives, every person, all of us have a reflex when we hear something that kicks back at some areas of our life. So if we talk about sexual temptation and you're, an issue of, and, you're, and you're in an issue of sexual temptation and sin right now, your reflex might be, ooh, turn it off. If it comes to finances, that might also be a situation where you find yourself, ooh. But as followers of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us, and we ought to talk to the Holy Spirit prayerfully about giving. That should be a regular part of our life. I asked one of our older brothers in our church family, I said, how would you address this? What would you say to someone? As an example, there's some pastors, you may not know this, not in our church. And by the way, as a church, we don't monitor what you give as pastors and elders or our accounting team does that. They, they are able to oversee that. But we as a church do not do that. We're transparent in our funds and those things. But there are some pastors in some churches, this is true, this may shock you, who will not tithe. They will not give to the church. And they rationalize it by saying, I simply won't ask for a raise. And therefore, I'll save the church money and the hassle of paying me more. I just won't financially give. I'll give of my effort and I'll give of my time, but I won't give financially. It's amazing what we can rationalize in it, isn't it? And I asked one of our older brothers, what would you say to that situation? He said, well, I, I would encourage that person to go home and before they go to bed at night, talk to the Holy Spirit about it. And tell them, Holy Spirit, I will give of my time, I'll give of my energy and effort, but I will not give of my bank account. And just see what the Holy Spirit does with that in your life. And make that a persistent prayer. So give prayerfully. It goes secondly, give faithfully. Give prayerfully and give faithfully. If you were talking to someone and they said, I work out once. Changes it, doesn't it? I eat healthy once. Changes the picture. So, so, so give in this way, give faithfully. Make it a part of who you are and what you do and the rhythms of your life that when you give, when you receive, you give. When you earn, you give. Make it a part of your rhythm of your life. And it goes thirdly with the idea of giving proportionally. Give prayerfully, faithfully, and give proportionally. Now, proportionally is a difficult word because we can set the standards of proportionally, can't we? And so the, it all goes together with prayerfully, prayerfully and proportionally, because the Spirit of God may, may convict you to give far more. The question often becomes, should I tithe? Should I tithe? And my answer to you is maybe. Maybe. You see, it's not echoed, it's not commanded the New Testament for you as a believer to tithe. The Spirit of God may call you to give much more than tithing. So we're all called to give sacrificially. There may be a situation in your life like you did with the widow in the Gospel of Mark or like in 2 Corinthians 9, I believe it is, with the church in Macedonia where you have this church that's in poverty yet they're giving generously. But give proportionally. I think it's a good area to work towards. And here's where I say this. 
We tend to give to our means. We tend to live to our means. So when we were in high school and we had our first job, we would have dreamed of making whatever you're making as an adult. But we typically do this. So if we don't intentionally budget in the time to give, we typically won't. We'll look and see what we have left at the end of the, t- of the pay period or the time or our account and say, well, it's all gone. So budget in the discipline of giving. There were several studies done, and one of those studies found that about 10% of uh, active church-going Christians tithe, which is ironic, 10% tithe. 10%. They, they did a study on those people that were regular givers of about 10%. And it found that over 60% of those began giving as children. So they had it programmed into their life and their mind of whatever I receive, no, no, this is, although it's a, I'm giving this away. So by the time they were in their 20s, over 60% had the habit of saying, nope, I, I budget that and I give. <clears throat> so I think that's a, a wisdom point of budgeting in generosity. During the Great Depression, Christians gave on average about 3.3% to the local church. During the Great Depression, 3.3%. Today, in the most technologically advanced time, I think, in human history, in the most wealthy country in human history, the average uh, Christian household gives 2.5%. 3.3% in the Great Depression, 2.5% today. So fourthly, it leads us to give sacrificially. Right? Give proportionally, but also don't count out the Spirit to convict you to give sacrificially. That's 2 Corinthians 8. Fifthly and finally, give joyfully. Give joyfully. Give joyfully. Right? Not, not begrudgingly, but give joyfully. You and I know what that is. This is not some shtick to, to shame you into giving. You know what that feeling is when you feel like somebody is pressuring you to do something, you don't, and then you just don't say no and you do it. <clears throat> That's not the picture of the believers. The picture is to give joyfully. Be at peace with the Lord Jesus Christ and what you do and give joyfully. Rejoice that he has entrusted that to you for a season and give joyfully. So as we talk about giving joyfully the ministries of our church, you support them. You support the facilities. You support the ministries that take place. You support the, the pastors and the, and the vocational staff. You support that, that labor among you. That's what he says. Share all good things with those who, with the one who teaches and, and, and functions. And that includes pastors faithfully as well giving to the mission. <clears throat> so talk about it with the Lord in your household. And you see the first big idea then, we as disciples are called by God to be committed and accountable one to another as a local church family. We move on to verses 7 through 10. And we as disciples will each be accountable to God for our present choices. We will each be accountable to God for our present choices. Every one of us. As a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a follower of, we will each be accountable to God for our present choices. And I've broken this down into two different areas Investors and farmers, investors and farmers, like investors and like farmers, will be held accountable before God. Not in a fearing of our soul type way as disciples, but as stewards. Those who are His will be held accountable as stewards, as investors and as farmers. I'm going to break that out for us. But verse 7 through 8, we see each of us, let's focus on the investors part, each of us are investors that choose the wide or the narrow fund. The wide or the narrow fund. Verse 7 through 8. Paul writes, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
Again, this is couched in the previous text that we've walked through. But let's take a moment on these first six, seven words, eight words. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Let's say this together. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Let's just do it again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now let's make this weird for you. I want you to make eye contact with somebody else in the church because that's who he's talking to. He's talking to disciples in the church. And now I know you're terrified to look over to the side of the person beside you. It's okay. You're not judging them. You're just reading the Scripture to the church who this is given to, okay? Are everybody ready? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So here's what we do in our sin. Here's what we do as disciples when we, can, when we sin. We communicate to God three things, one of three things. Number one, you don't know about what I'm doing. Therefore, we're mocking him. You see that? We're pretending like God doesn't know about our sin, even as believers. Or two, we're saying he's apathetic. He knows what I'm doing, but he doesn't care. Or third, he knows what I'm doing, but he's not all-powerful and he can't do anything about it. Even as disciples, when we sin, we mock God. At our Monday Thursday service this Thursday, this new commandment, this, the Lord Jesus Christ taking the Lord's Supper, taking the Passover meal and redefining, reinstituting it as this thing that we do in remembrance of Jesus who would come to lead us free from the bondage of sin and death. His broken body, his spilled blood. One of the things that we're going to do at this shorter service is we're going to read Mark 14 and 15 together. One of our members is going to read that text, Mark 14 and 15. And as we simply follow along in the Scripture together, we read about the mocking of Jesus, that the Jew, Jewish authorities mock Jesus. They hurl insults upon him. And the Romans who begin beating him and placing a crown of thorns upon his head, they mock him. And they make a mocking sign, the king of the Jews, above his head. And then he gets on the cross, and you keep reading. And the two guys that are hung on the cross beside him, on each cross, they're mocking him. And you can't read that account. Every time I read that account, I, I get angry legitimately I get upset thinking how could they do that I mean you're being you're being killed and you're mocking the one that's being killed beside you and then you read Galatians 6 and he says to the church do not be deceived God is not mocked the black and white words turn into a mirror Oh, that's my sin that held him there. As a forgiven child of God, that's also I who mock him even still. But praise God, he died on the cross for my mocking of him, even now. The debt that he paid once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, truly is sufficient. 
And he calls us now as his kids in Christ, heirs in Christ, to pour our lives out for his glory as stewards. Those that have died with him, we will raise with him one day. But now in our life, he lives through us. And as we grow in forgiving one another and serving one another and caring for one another as a local bride of Christ, we do so for the glory of Christ, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, ministers through his kids, often through his kids. So by God's grace, may we be a people who pour out our lives for this truth. Because we're unashamed to invest in the narrow way, not the broad way of the flesh, but the narrow way of the Spirit. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. The Spirit helps us to invest in the narrow way and reaps eternal rewards. Each of us are investors, and we come to 9 and 10, each of us are also farmers. Each of us are investors, and each of us are farmers. And what do we choose in this context? The investors choose where they're going to invest their resources, the relationships, the responsibilities, and the resources that God's given them. But now as farmers, we each choose to quit or to persevere. That's the choice we make as farmers. You see, the Lord has already placed our hand the plow to serve and to go and to work, and to cast seeds faithfully in all different seasons that he calls us in, unashamedly casting seeds and watering seeds and praying that God would give growth. The question we have to answer as farmers is, will I persevere or will I hang it up? Look what he says in 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are not to grow weary of doing good, individually and collectively, the plural. Individually and collectively, we're not to grow weary of doing good. Keep going. Keep going. Individually and collectively. Keep going. Don't grow weary of doing good, but there's four words that he mentions there that I find particularly difficult in the Christian life. I don't know if you do, but for me, these four words are incredibly difficult. For in due season. For in due season. You see, I am my own life. I have my own plans. I have my own hopes. I have my own vision for what my life should look like, for what my kids' lives should look like, even what our church should look like. In Proverbs 3, 5, one of the most quoted verses and easy to remember, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, is so easy to remember, but it is so hard to practice, isn't it? For in due season, you see, we don't set the race. The Lord sets the race for us. For in due season, Christian. When? Tomorrow? For in due season. What's the reward that they're going to reap? They're going to be reaped. The due season is the course of our lives. Persevere for all of our lives, all of our days ahead. I want you to imagine that all of our six elders seven counting me, come forward at the end of service. 
And they say, we have a special announcement we need to make. And all of our elders, Bud, Jerry, Zach, Ben, Jonathan, Gene, they all come forward. And they say, we've prayed about this. And we believe we need to start physically and mentally training for a race. And so we're going to put a gym in over here. And we're going to test each other mentally. And we're going to train feverishly every Sunday. And one of your first questions right away probably would be, okay, well, how long is this race that we're training for? How long is this going to last? And they say, well, for some of you, it might be a few months. And for others, it might be about 90 or so years. But we're going to train every Sunday. We're going to train together. And immediately, part of your heart probably looks and says, I don't need that. I'm in better shape than most everybody in here. Not me, it was like a miracle to get my pants on this morning, okay? Confession. But you compare yourself to others and say, I think I'm doing okay. I don't need that. And that's the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as believers says, Lord, this is what you call me to do. You call me to plow. You call me to run a race. And you give me a gift of pouring into the lives of others. That's what a local church body is. That says not simply this is what I get and this is what I need, but it says this is what I give. This is how I edify you. This is how I serve you. This is how I pour my life out with you. And this is how I hold you accountable. And yet our hearts that are consumeristic mindsets say what? I'll make it when I can. Sunday, fun day. And we don't treat it like we're running a race, like what the Scripture says. We don't treat it like for in due season. Instead, our flesh treats it like for if I want to. The Scripture says we're already running the race. Some of us are so weary, we're barely even here this morning. The beauty of the Scriptures and the call that God gives us as the bride of Christ as we have the time to look around, to ask, how are you doing? Not the reflex, I'm good. How are you doing? And then minister the gospel to each other in that way, to put our minds together on Christ. And as we do this, we apply the very last words of verse 10. The very last words of verse 10. Let us do good to everyone, but especially who? To those who are of the household of faith. God has wired us to run together. He's wired us to farm together. He's wired us to worship together, to serve together, to love one another, to forgive one another, to grow together, to train each other, to endure our mind and our bodies together for the glory of Christ. That is the goodness of the family meeting that we're in right now. That's the goodness of the body of Christ. That's the goodness of being able to go to God as Father. That's the good of being forgiven. That's the good of the one who said it's finished. And that's the one who calls us and says, for in due season, a harvest is coming. May we be faithful to the plow. 
Amen? Amen. I love our family meetings. Our next steps. Our next steps. Quite practical on this side. Next steps, question number one, to whom in this room? So to whom in this room, and you can count the 915ers as well. So to whom in this room might I personally invite to come over and share a meal at our house? Who might I do that for? And then the second question isn't just conceptually I'm going to choose this person, but it's going to be when am I going to ask them? So it's going to happen then if you put a date on when you're going to ask somebody. I didn't do so. But the second category is, which of my neighbors? You see, I, got, I believe God's placed you in the dorm he's placed you. I believe he's given you the roommates, the family members, the neighborhood for a reason. Our God does not make accidents in that way. He's strategically placed you there for a reason. So who is a neighbor that you can just go over? Would you like to come over for dinner sometime? Who's somebody that you could do that to? Pray about it. Set a goal and do so this month. The second application question for us is, is more personal. Are you growing weary in doing good? Like truly, are you growing weary of doing good? And if you are, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, who is somebody in this room, somebody in our church family, that you know you can confess that to, you know will be joyful to come alongside you, put their arm around you, and help you get up. Or first, lay down with you for a little bit. That's the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us a family. Not only do we worship the Lord together, but we sing together as we worship. Would you stand with me as we celebrate the reality that Jesus truly is better?